What a great time of worship together as a faith family. Good way to start a Sunday morning. June 10th, 2000, marked the grand opening of the Millennium Bridge, a new futuristic bridge built across the Thames River in London. It's a suspension bridge, but unlike a traditional suspension bridge, the supports are not vertical. They're horizontal, so it doesn't look like the Golden Gate Bridge with, the, with tall supports. Instead, it was designed to be the, the bridge of the future, like a bolt of light shooting across the river into the new millennium. And on opening day, thousands of people gathered early to be among the first to walk across the bridge. The large team that had designed and built and tested, refined and retested every last detail of the bridge beamed with pride. All of London seemed to hold its breath as the ribbon was ceremoniously cut and the cheering throng stepped out onto the bridge. A dozen news reporters, multiple film crews, and every last person with the digital camera captured what happened next. And what happened next was the thing that immediately shut down the brand new Millennium Bridge. As the crowd advanced over the bridge, the the combination of... Uh, footsteps from pedestrians sent a distinct vibration throughout the bridge. Each wholly random step from each unique individual produced a certain energy that spread and began to synchronize across the span of the bridge. And the pattern continued until the whole structure began to sway from side to side, wobbling like the blade of an old metal saw. But what happened next was the really amazing part. In order for the crowd to keep from toppling over onto one another and to continue moving forward across the bridge, each person began to to waddle unnaturally, taking a, a wide step out to the right and then out to the left and so on, what one participant referred to as a skating gait. Very quickly, the entire crowd was stepping in the same way at exactly the same time, all walking together in unison. Just like the vibrations of the bridge, the pedestrians became synchronized. And and still photos or videos from the event convey what looked like an inebriated group of people walking down a wedding aisle or or a choreographed ice skating show. The media went wild. They dubbed the Millennium Bridge a flop, some masterpiece of futuristic engineering, they jeered. It was like being on a boat, one shaken pedestrian said. Another one said, we all had to conform to the movement of the bridge. Well, maybe in this story you can hear some similarities to recent events here at Trinity. And researchers who studied the opening of the bridge, they discovered some conclusions that are very helpful for us. At first, they realized there was an unexpected event that created a chaotic result. All the planning and thinking and testing did not anticipate that the bridge would respond the way it did. And secondly, the way to respond to an unexpected event is by unifying and working together. That was the only path forward for the folks that were stuck on the bridge. They had to keep moving forward But the only way they could do that was by moving forward together. And that's perhaps the most valuable lesson for us at this time. Today we're going to wrap up our study we've called a healthy church. And there's no question that a healthy church 
is one that's unified, unified around God's agenda, but also unified with each other. And as you've been here the past few weeks, you know that these last few weeks in our study in particular, God has very clearly spoken to our unique situation through his word. These passages have been particularly helpful and well-suited to the situation in which we find ourselves. And this morning, as we wrap up the study, that's certainly the case again. These final words from the book of Titus seem to speak for themselves. So I want us to to read the passage, and then we're going to identify some issues that we can get unity around, because the reality is that unity is not something that comes naturally for us. Just like that awkward skating gait, the unity that we need to move forward, it's not natural. It requires all of us moving together, and, and that's hard. There's lots of things that can distract us from that, and this final passage in our study in Titus speaks to some of those potential distractions. So let's look at the passage, Titus chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such a person is warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. There's some strong words here, to be sure. Some big ideas that are not pretty. I don't envy the guy who has to preach this message. But just like the Millennium Bridge fiasco, when an unexpected event occurs, there's really only one way to respond, with unity, working together to move forward. And so in looking at this passage, we see three categories or three situations that are addressed here, three situations that require different responses. And the easiest way to see the different responses that are called for is to look at the verbs in this passage. There's, there's basically three verbs here. Look at the passage one more time. First, avoid. That's one verb, one response that's called for in certain situations. And secondly, warn. You see that at the beginning of verse 10. And the third verb, it says, have nothing to do with them. Other translations say reject, so we'll use that word for the sake of simplicity, reject. So avoid, warn, reject. Those are three options. And we're going to explore what all those mean and which situations call for which response. But in order to really understand this passage, we've got to back up a little bit. In fact, we need to go back to the beginning. Not just to the beginning of Titus, but we're going to go all the way back to Genesis, the beginning of everything. Because one of the keys to unity is is sound thinking, sound doctrine. And that's how I want us to start today, by clarifying something very, very important. Uh, Last Sunday, after our services, we had an impromptu time of prayer. And one of the things that, that somebody prayed was... Uh, for all of us to be focused on Christ. Because if we're all focused on Christ, then we're all unified, right? Uh, so, so right thinking, right action, a right focus, if you will, uh, that helps breed unity in these times when, when unexpected things happen, when the bridge starts to shake. So we go back to the beginning, back to Genesis chapter 1, all the way back. And in chapter 1, God the Trinity says, uh, God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in this moment of creation, this moment of dialogue between the members of the Trinity, God creates a a man and a mandate, if you will. God creates Adam and Eve, and he gives them a a mandate, clear instructions. The humans are, are made in God's own image and likeness, and they're made with a very clear purpose. They're made to reflect who God is. It's God. He's this, this glorious creator of the universe. And Adam is the son of the king. Therefore, he's, he's born into the family business, if you will. He's created to carry on the work that God himself started. Verse 26 tells us the humans are to lead the father's kingdom, and they're to lead it in the same way that the father does. In the, in the likeness of the Father. So the humans rule over the kingdom of God, and they have a very specific way in which they do that. They, they multiply, they're fruitful, and they also subdue God's creation. They bring order to it. So in the same way that God himself brings order out of chaos, he's, he's created something out of this formless void here in chapter 1, the humans are given the same task. They, they multiply, doing the same kind of creative work that God does, and they subdue. They bring order to what God is doing. So you might say they, they unify God's creation around God's purpose. This is very important because it's God's design and desire for each and every one of us. We all have an identity and a mandate, an identity that reflects God and all his goodness and glory, and a purpose to bring unity around God's agenda. God's people are given this leadership, and then we're told to reproduce more of it. We're never meant to be power grabbers, but but power givers. We're not just called to, to have power and authority, but we're called to use it to serve other people. We're made in the image, and God gives us this amazing mandate. Not only did God make us to thrive within his creation, but he commissioned us to to lead this creation, to unify it, so that others could thrive and flourish as well. But if you turn the page in Genesis, just a page or two ahead, you see that Adam and Eve did not do a very good job of unifying God's creation. Even their own children don't multiply and subdue the earth. In fact, Cain does the exact opposite. He kills God's creation. So the introduction of sin tainted God's original desire, but it didn't change God's mind. His desire is still for us to represent him and to bring unity around his purpose. But when sin comes in, it makes fulfilling God's desire harder and harder. Relationships become a burden and not a blessing. We start using people for our purposes rather than nurturing people for God's purposes. All our relationships with other people get called into question. Instead of being people who unify others, we we separate others. We start to draw hard lines. And one of the side effects of all this is that we have an inherent distrust of other people, especially those in authority. I mean, if you lead anything or if you have children, you know that we have an inherent distrust of authority. But here's the thing. It's not the authority that's the problem. The the leadership that we all have, that's not the problem. That part is God's design and God's desire. The problem is sin. So we sometimes get the problem all wrong. We divide people, we reject people, we suppress people. But people are not the problem. 
people are made in the image of God. That's not the problem. The problem is sin. Our sin, first and foremost, and and the sin of other people. When sin was introduced into the world, that's what created the problem. Then we come along and we've kind of mastered sin. We took it to a whole new level. We're sin experts at this point. And so we've just made the problem worse. So we don't see unity around God's purposes and agenda, not because people are the problem. We don't see that unity because sin is the problem. It's tainted God's original mandate. So this lesson from Genesis is very important. It's a, it's a total paradigm shift for us. We understand that we have a, a mandate to unify people around God's agenda, and we understand that people are not the problem. Sin is the problem. Sin is our common enemy. So with this new, clearer understanding, we come back to this passage in Titus. Let's read it one more time. Titus 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such a person is warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. So remember, our focus is on these three verbs. Avoid, warn, and reject or have nothing to do with. So let's explore how we know when to engage in these three actions. First, avoid. Verse 9 tells us specifically what to avoid. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments, quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. So we avoid foolishness. Now remember, we're not avoiding foolish people. That's probably impossible. But we're avoiding foolish situations. People are not the problem, right? We avoid foolishness, which, which makes us ask the question, how do we know when something is foolish? Well, for Titus and the church here in Creed, it seems that, that foolishness took a very specific look for them. This verse indicates that some people were hung up on genealogies. And it's not totally clear, but it seems like they were trying to trace their own heritage to make them closer to Jesus or closer to Moses or whatever. But either way, who cares? I mean, however you get to Jesus, the key is that you get to Jesus, right? You know, And it seems like they had some arguments about the, the law, the Jewish law. How much do we need to obey the Old Testament? It's a common point of discussion in the early church especially. So they have all these disagreements. But how do you know when something is foolish or not? Well, the verse gives us a couple of clues. Notice some of the key words here. Unprofitable or useless. So, so foolish things, foolish arguments are, are those things that are obviously foolish. It's clear that this kind of discussion, this kind of argument is going nowhere. Right? You know the old saying about wrestling a pig? Don't do it. You just get dirty and the pig likes it. That's kind of the situation here. Uh, there's, there's foolish controversies. Avoid them. They're useless. And notice, Paul says they're unprofitable. That's direct contrast to the verse right above this, verse 8, we talked about last week. Doing what's good is profitable for everyone. So one way you can recognize foolishness is when it takes you off of God's mission. It's not doing good, which is profitable. It's the opposite. It's unprofitable. Something that's foolish doesn't help you fulfill your God-given mandate to unify people around God's agenda. 
It doesn't help you fulfill the commission that Jesus gave us to make disciples who make other disciples. A, a foolish controversy or quarrel is something that just distracts from that. Another way to evaluate whether something's foolish or not is just to ask the question, is, is solving this going to make me better? Will, will entering into this controversy, seeing it through to the end, make us better followers of Jesus? Because something that's foolish is something that doesn't contribute to our godliness. Maybe you heard about the, the ridiculous parking space showdown in Los Angeles this week. Two people fought over a parking space for two hours, neither one willing to budge. Even the winner still foolish, right? Foolishness distracts. It doesn't make us better. Another way to evaluate if something is foolish or not is simply to think about motive, Why is this person engaging in this argument or this controversy in the first place? Are they trying to just prove a point or build themselves up? Or are they trying to push an agenda of some kind? Uh, I came across a quote online recently, and I thought it was helpful. It said, the difference between a critic and a critical thinker is motive. Critics want you to lose. Critical thinkers want you to win. Motive is a pretty good way to evaluate if something is foolish or not. So the first action is to avoid. We avoid foolishness, things which are obviously unprofitable. And this word avoid, it literally means to to turn and face the other way. That's how you avoid. You just walk away from these kinds of things. Don't respond. Don't get involved, you know. The second action gets a little bit trickier. We warn. Look at verse 10 again. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. And the sense of this passage is that the, the person, the person who's doing the foolish arguing, they persist. They don't get the hint. They don't get the clue that you're not responding, and they kind of continue into the foolishness. They're persistent. They take it to the next level. It becomes something beyond just foolishness, and now it's divisive. Maybe they're talking to others about the foolish quarrel, trying to draw people in, involving other people in the issue. Well, that's unnecessary. It's divisive. So we warn those people. And notice we warn them twice. Why do we warn them twice? Because of grace. Remember, sin is the problem. People are not the problem. So we give people grace. We warn against sin. We warn them twice. And so the warning, it doesn't come in necessarily like a threat. It comes with a lot of grace. It looks and sounds a lot more like helpful feedback. And feedback is something that we can all benefit from. And we all have a need for feedback, even though we all push back against it. We all need feedback because we all operate on assumptions. Let me show you what I mean. Hold your place in Titus, flip backwards to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. In this chapter, Peter makes a a stunning statement. He understands the true identity of Jesus. In Matthew 16, Verse 15, Jesus asked his disciples, what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. So Peter gets it right. Out of all the disciples, he really understands Jesus. But then just a few verses later, he makes an assumption. You know what happens when you assume. Look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
So Peter understands who Jesus is, but then he starts operating on assumptions. I mean, we all do it. He assumes certain things about Jesus, about his plans and his purpose, so that even as Jesus is telling the disciples what's going to happen to him, Peter responds in a very divisive manner. This shall never happen. His assumption is all wrong. But again, people are not the problem. Peter's not the problem. It's sin. And Jesus understands that, so Jesus gives him some helpful feedback. A warning, if you will. I mean, Jesus really models a really great way to provide feedback. Uh, It's sure to get you well-liked by other people, probably going to get you promoted at work. At the very least, it's going to get you noticed. Look at the feedback that Jesus provides. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Jesus knows that Peter needs a warning. But he's not even addressing Peter, right? He's really just addressing sin. Peter's acting divisively. He needs to be warned. He's acting on this assumption that it's, it's misguided assumption, ultimately dangerous. His assumption directly contradicts God's plan, and so it's wrong. If Peter had continued in this way, then sin would have ruled the day. So Jesus warns him, and he gives him grace. He doesn't kick him out. He very clearly but lovingly warns him. So the key in these kinds of situations is you've got to separate the sin from the person made in the image of God. Jesus still treats Peter like a person, still treats him with love and respect, but he recognizes the sin that Peter's assumption is based on. So when it comes to warning a divisive person, a helpful strategy is just to look for assumptions. If a person begins operating on false assumptions, they need a warning. But we focus on the assumptions, not the person, because you and I, we're all people who make assumptions. We're all sinners, But remember, people are not the problem. So we lovingly warn once, twice, maybe even more, if necessary, to get back to unity. Now we get to the hard part. What if? What if a person has been foolish, they haven't realized the foolishness? What if they've persisted in their false assumptions, they've begun spreading that kind of thing around, and they're creating division, they've been warned, they've been warned again, They're still at it. What if? That's where the third part of the process comes in. Look at Titus 3, verse 10. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Reject them. You may be sure that such a person is warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. So this third verb, this third step in the process is to reject. Have nothing to do with them. I think it's important to recognize this is the last step, the the last resort, if you will. I think we want to jump to this step early on in our minds, but that's not the right process. Jumping to reject too early means that we think people are the problem, and that's just not true. So we save this for the last resort. We only reject when they become divisive, and not just divisive because we see that in in the warning step, but in this case, they've been warned and they persist in sin. They're they're non-responsive to the warnings, to the correction. So rejecting a person only happens when everything else has been attempted already. I think that's important to remember. Go back to the beginning. People are not the problem. Even Repeatedly divisive people are not the problem. Sin is the problem. So we have to keep focused on that, keep reminding ourselves about that. And the sin in this kind of situation is not necessarily the the false view, the false assumption. 
The sin that this passage speaks of, the sin that leads to the rejection, is the sin of forcing divisiveness. If a person's only spreading false assumptions, that requires a warning or two. But when a person continues after that warning, then their sin becomes one of disobedience, not just wrong thinking, the sin of disobedience. That's what brings about rejection. They've rejected the leadership of the church. The ending of the verse tells us that. Look at verse 11. You may be sure that such a person is warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. See, they're self-condemned because they themselves are rejecting the church. They reject the church because of their disobedience, their unwillingness to submit to leadership or wisdom. So the church's rejection of them is really secondary in some ways to their own self-rejection of the church. That's an important distinction. Before the church rejects anybody, they've already made that decision on their own. They've rejected the warnings, they've continued into the sin of disobedience, and so they're self-condemned. And when we think about rejection, that's a strong word. In our minds, we go to a, a pretty strong place with that word. You're fired kind of rejection, right? But this word, it's a word that's used a handful of times in the Bible, and each time it carries a slightly different Meaning, So it's not clear exactly what it looks like to reject. In some cases, some uh, verses where this word appears, it just means to request. Now, I don't think that's what it means in this case, but, but the same word can mean slightly different things. Sometimes it means to request. Sometimes it means to excuse someone. You may be excused. But sometimes it means to reject with some, some force behind it. Sometimes it's a, it's a shunning So the point is simply that rejecting a disobedient person, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of an activity. It requires a certain level of discernment and a certain amount of wisdom to match the rejection to the severity of the sin. One more observation about rejection has to do with who's in charge of the rejection. The clear implication in this passage is that the rejection, if things get to this point, That rejection is done by church leaders, not necessarily one member rejecting another. It's a step for church leaders to engage in. So that's good news for for most of you because you don't have to worry about rejecting anybody, about having to navigate this tricky situation. It's a problem for church leaders to address at that point. So we avoid foolishness. We warn, and we warn again when it comes to divisive assumptions, divisive ideas. And then church leaders reject when it comes to blatant disobedience. That's the process. And it all falls under this umbrella of sound doctrine that people are not the problem, that sin is the problem. And the process is designed ultimately to love and restore people, to unify people around God's agenda. Even the rejection is really an act of love ultimately because people are not the problem. And I want to leave us with a couple of concluding thoughts. First, let's remember something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We talked about filling in the gap with trust in these moments when there's a gap, uh, when what you expected from a person is different from what they did or, or a person says one thing and then they do another. There's this gap in your understanding. And the key is that we've got to choose to fill that gap with trust. We choose to believe that the other person's not the problem, they have good intentions, that, that something else caused that gap. We've got to choose to trust first. And then you do the hard work of relationships. You go to that person and you talk to them. Say, hey, I've got a gap. You said this, you did this, help me understand what happened there. 
but you choose to trust, you choose to assume the best about people, that's a great way to live out this sound doctrine that people are not the problem. So let's commit ourselves to do that, to, to help uh, enter into this three-part process with the right mindset. Helps us get to the right place, ultimately unifying everyone around God's agenda. One final word. There's one more good reminder at the end of this book of Titus. See, as we read these verses we've studied today, it's, it's easy to get a bit inward-focused, uh, thinking that uh, the things that we do in here are, are all that matters. It's, it takes a lot of energy to keep things going along in a healthy way in here, so it's easy to get focused in on that, especially in a church like ours, a church that has diversity within our body. It's easy to spend a lot of time and energy just focusing on ourselves, caring for ourselves. But there's one more good reminder at the end of this book of Titus that I want us to see. Look at the very last paragraph of the book, verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what's good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. So you know I couldn't end a sermon on Titus without mentioning good works one more time, right? The big challenge with these kinds of controversies, these divisive issues, is that they're a distraction. They take us away from our outward focus. They keep us from being devoted to good works. Because you can't be devoted to good works when you're chasing down every little foolish argument that comes your way. But if our purpose is unifying people around God's agenda, we've got to be devoted to that. We've got to be focused on doing what's good. And that kind of focus is what helps all of us step in unison forward together. Because just like that Millennium Bridge was designed to be a, a bolt of light stretching out into the future, so is the church. We're the light of the world. And the enemy would love nothing more than for us to just shine the light on ourselves, chasing down fighting and controversy and quarrels, distracted by thinking that people are the problem. But a healthy church is one that's devoted to doing what's good, one that knows that sin is our common enemy, and one that's united around God's purposes. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word that teaches us, that corrects us, that uh, challenges our assumptions and points us to ultimately the the truth, which is you, your son Jesus. And uh, we think of the prayer that Jesus himself prays, that we would be one in the same way that you are one, God. That we would have unity with uniqueness. We would be uh, unified in, in stepping together in the, in the same way and, and loving each other well, building healthy relationships. And, and I pray that you would uh, help us to accomplish that. And in the midst of that, Lord, don't let us lose sight of doing what's good. We want to be devoted to that. We want to be focused on, on unifying people around your purposes and your agenda, making disciples who make other disciples, Lord. That's our, our burning desire for us, for the people in our valley, Lord. There's so much work to be done and we want to be the people who are healthy and unified to go and do it. We thank you for the work that you're doing here at Trinity and, and pray that you would just continue to do good things and continue to show us what it looks like to, to be made in your image and to be conformed to the image of your Son in whose name we pray, amen.